0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Stripe. Tap to pay on iPhone, and Stripe can help you grow your business's revenue and reach through accepting more in-person, contactless payments right from an iPhone. To learn how, visit Stripe.com slash tap iPhone.
1: Hey, it's Guy here. We're a couple of months into the new year, so let me ask you. Have you kept up with your New Year's resolutions? Most of us want to become better versions of ourselves, but Forming new habits and sticking with them can be really hard. So today on the show, we're exploring how we can create space to become a version of our better selves. This episode is called A Better You, and it originally aired in June of 2017. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks.
0: TED Talks.
1: Uh, TED.
0: TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design.
1: Design. Is that really what's TED for? <laughs> I've never known that Delivered at TED conferences around the world. the gift of the human imagination.
2: We've had to believe in impossible things.
1: The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio from NPR. Guy Roz. so what you think back to the last time you were rejected? Maybe your boss shot down one of your ideas. Maybe, maybe you asked somebody out and it didn't go over too well. Whatever it was, rejection is not fun, and I think it's safe to say most people try to avoid it, or at least most people don't seek out rejection, unless you're this guy.
3: My name is Jia Jiang, and um, people call me the Rejection Guy.
1: Ja actually goes out looking for rejection all the time, on purpose. By the way, have you been have you been rejected today at all?
3: Uh, no, I haven't been. Uh, You've
1: not experienced rejection today.
3: No, I feel bad about it now, but I do it probably like two to three times a week just to keep myself sharp.
1: And the thing is, for most of his life, Ja was terrified of rejection.
3: Yes, absolutely. I was so afraid of rejection. Just looking back, I felt. This is one of my biggest problems
1: in my life. So he decided to do something about this problem. And Ja thought by fixing it, he could become a better version of himself.
3: So I Googled how do I overcome my fear of rejection. And I, I found this one website called rejectiontherapy.com that would ask you to get rejected on every day. You desensitize yourself from that pain of rejection. And I just love that
1: idea. So back in 2012, Cha ja decided to try this rejection therapy, and he filmed it.
3: Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Ja.
1: And he put the videos on YouTube.
3: This is my day 10 of rejection therapy, um, just to conquer fear.
1: Every day for 100 days, he made various requests of strangers. I'm going
3: to ask someone to open up their backyard and for me to play soccer in it requests where he figured I'm gonna walk into a local business and uh, ask to do
1: a steering contest with the CEO. People would always say no.
3: All right, uh, quick and easy. Uh, I want to get my hair trimmed at uh, the store today. Hey, any chance I can plant this flower in your yard? Today I'm uh, flying. I'm, uh, I'm gonna ask them to allow me to do the public safety announcement before the flight takes off. Hopefully I don't get arrested. A hundred days of rejection. A hundred days of rejection. And then that's what I did. You come out, become like a master of rejection. <laughs> I just want to see what, what, what
1: kind of top guy I've become. Today on the show, a better you. Ideas about changing the things about us we kind of want to change. Conquering a fear or changing a habit or trying something new. Becoming the kind of person you want to be. And for Judge young becoming a better version of himself meant conquering his fear of rejection. And that fear, it came from something that happened way back in his childhood. He told the story from the TED stage. When
3: I was 6 years old, my first-grade
1: teacher had this brilliant
3: idea. She wanted us to experience receiving gifts, but also learning the virtue of complimenting each other. So she had all of us come to the front of the classroom, and she bought all of us gifts and stacked them in the corner. And she said, why don't we just stand here and compliment each other? If you hear your name called, go and pick up your gifts and sit down. What could go wrong? (laughs) Well, there were 40 of us to start with, and every time when I hear someone's name called, I would give out the heartiest cheer. And then there were 20 people left, and 10 people left, 5 left, and three left. I was one of them. And the compliments stopped. And the teacher was freaking out. And she was like, hey, would anyone say anything nice about these people? <laughs> no one? Okay, why don't you go get your gift and sit down so behave next year, someone might say something nice about you. <laughs> well, uh, as I'm describing this to you, you probably know I remember this really well. <laughs> so that... That was one version of me, and I would die to avoid being in that situation again, to get rejected in public again. That's one version. Then fast forward eight years, um, Bill Gates came to my hometown, Beijing, China, to speak, and I saw his message. I thought, wow, I know what I want to do now. That night, I wrote a letter to my family telling them by age 25, I will build the biggest company in the world and that company will buy Microsoft. <laughs> do,
1: do you remember what you wrote in that letter?
3: Yeah, I, I do. So in the letter, I said, by age 25, I will become the biggest entrepreneur in the world. And, and also, I talked about, I'm going to go to the United States someday to, to be this entrepreneur, to fulfill that dream. I even chose a city for myself to live in. I chose, I want to move to Houston. You know, I really have no idea why I chose Houston. It's, uh, the name sounded good to me, you know, Houston. Uh, and, but also probably because they won the NBA championship that year, the, you know, the, the Houston Rockets, and I kind of liked them. So that's, that, was, uh, that was in that letter. Well, then two years later, I was presented with the opportunity to come to the United States. I jumped on it because that was where Bill Gates lived, right? So I, I thought that was the start of my entrepreneurial journey. Then fast forward another 14 years, I was 30. Nope, I didn't build that company. I didn't even start. I was actually a marketing manager for a Fortune 500 company, and I felt I was stuck. I was stagnant. Why is that? Where is that 14-year-old who wrote that letter? It's not because he didn't try. It's because every time I had a new idea, every time I wanted to try something new, even at work, I wanted to make a proposal, I wanted to speak up in front of people in a group. I felt there was this constant battle between the 14-year-old and the 6-year-old. One wanted to conquer the world, make a difference. Another was afraid of rejection. And every time, that
1: 6-year-old won. Tell me what was going on in your life when you decided, I need to deal with this problem that I have. So it was, uh, I just turned 30 at the time. And I heard the
3: news that we're going to have a baby, right? But then my wife was like, you know, hey, when I first met you, right? All you talked about is your great ideas and you want to do all this. I want to have that guy back. Hmm. If you really want to be this entrepreneur, you just, if you don't do it now, you're going to have a lot of regret. Hmm. Looking back, you're going to start blaming your kids, your family for not achieving your dreams, right? So Ended up quitting my job four days before my first child was born. Wow. That didn't go over too well with my in-laws, by the way.
4: I bet, yeah.
5: (laughs) yeah,
3: No, they were not happy at all. But I I stepped out and started building my company. Then I was looking for investment. But what ended up happening is four months into my venture, I was rejected with this investment. And uh, it really, really hurt me. It was like all those feelings. Oh, it was like a six-year-old was standing on my shoulder again, just telling me,
1: who do you think you are? You know, and this, so that's where I have to make a stand. And and that's when you discovered this idea of rejection therapy, like you thought, that's it, this is what I need to do. Yeah, there are two parts of this. One is, I want to solve this
3: rejection problem. You know, this is something going to help me and I'm willing to try it. But also the other part is like, let me uh, do something that I've been, I would not dare to do in my life. I don't know where this business is going to go. But if I come out as a stronger person, that's not a bad uh, outcome. So here's what I did. Day one, borrow $100 from stranger. <laughs> Came downstairs and saw this big guy sitting behind a desk. You know, he, he looked like a security guard. So I just approached him. I just at the back of my neck standing up. I was sweating. Then my heart was pounding. And I got there and said, hey, um, sir, can I borrow $100 from you? And he looked up. He's like, no. (laughs) Why? And I just said, I said, no, I'm sorry. Then I turned around and just ran. (laughs) I felt so embarrassed. But because I filmed myself that night, I was watching myself getting rejected. I just saw how scared I was. I looked like this kid in sixth sense. I saw dead people. (laughs) But then I saw this guy. He, He wasn't that menacing. He was Trumpy, lovable guy, you know? And he even asked me why. In fact, he invited me to explain myself. I could have said many things. I could have explained, I could have negotiated. All I did was run. I felt, wow, this is like a microcosm of my life. Every time I feel the slightest rejection, I was just run as fast as I could. And you know what? The next day, no matter what happens, I'm not going to run. I'll stay engaged. They, two, request a burger refill. This <laughs> is where I finished, uh, went to a burger joint, I finished lunch, and I went to the cashier and said, hey, can I get a burger refill? <laughs> I, and he was all confused. I was like, what's a burger refill? <laughs> I said, well, just like a drink refill, but what's a burger? <laughs> and he said, sorry, we don't do a burger refill, man. <laughs> so this is where rejection happened. I, I could have run, but I stayed. I said, well, I love your burger, I love your your joint, and if you guys do a burger refill, I will love you guys more. (laughs) And he said, well, okay, I'll tell my manager about it. Maybe we'll do it, but sorry, we can't do this today. Then I left. But the life and death feeling I was feeling the first time was no longer there, just because I stayed engaged, because I didn't run. I said, wow, great,
1: I'm already learning things. So you did this for 98 more days, right? You got rejected or you tried to get rejected every day. You courted this.
3: Yep, I did. I did.
1: And what happened to your your fear of rejection?
3: The funny thing is, I don't think you can ever get rid of that fear, Hmm. but... I started developing a very healthy relationship with rejection, You know, meaning I built up this whole experience of, oh, if you go get rejection, that's you're okay, right? And that is always there. No one can take that away from me. So when I go into any real negotiation or any real life experiences where I would possibly be rejected, you know, I immediately know what to do with re- when rejection happens. I can know how to negotiate. I know how to have fun. I know how to keep it lighthearted. I know not to take it personally. So I built up this whole mindset hmm. uh, that I can use almost as a, as a tool.
1: It became my friend. I can say rejection is, is my friend now. And it seems like a big part of this this whole experiment was was kind of trying to make yourself into a better version of yourself. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I, I still do that constantly.
3: There's an old um, Chinese proverb that talked about, hey, if if God or heaven is going to give you a big uh, task or mission, right? He's going to run you through the ringers. Hmm. He's going to have to put you through all kinds of difficulties. If you overcome them, then you're ready. Hmm. I kind
1: of use that as some sort of inspiration for me. Ji Jiang, he wrote a book about his project. It's called Rejection Proof. And by the way, incredibly, out of his 100 requests, he actually got 51 people to say yes. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. Our show today, ideas about becoming a better you. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
6: Support for NPR and the following message come from State Farm. As a State Farm agent and agency owner, Lakeisha Gaines is passionate about empowering other small businesses.
2: In the last several years, there are more business owners than we can count.
6: Businesses
1: are opening up quite frequently, and I think that shows the need, the dreams, and the desires of the community to have the independence and to have the financial freedom that's important to them. The reason why it's so important to me to be out there to share information and to educate the community is because I know that a dream doesn't always help you to be successful. You need the competency, you need the wisdom, you need the knowledge. That's where we come in as State Farm agents, our ability to be able to teach over 100 years of experience in this world to say, hey, we got you. You got this and we got this. Let's do it together.
6: Talk to your local agent about small business insurance from State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
1: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today,
5: a better you. I think we all have the the potential to change. This is Andy Puttycomb. Don't mean that through a, a sort of a, a forcing will type of change, but rather better understanding our mind, seeing it more clearly, understanding what causes us happiness and what causes us unhappiness, and being able to let go of those things that cause us unhappiness. Andy's kind of an expert on meditation. You might recognize his voice
1: from his meditation app called Headspace. He's actually a former Buddhist monk, and the story of how he became one started in his late teens, when Andy lost two close friends and a family member, all within
5: a short period of time. And at that time, I certainly didn't have the skills, the understanding, to know how to deal with those things that I'd been witness to. So what did you do? I mean, did you deal with it in any way? yeah i mean i think as i went to college i think being staying in one place for one time gave me the opportunity to see that actually no matter how much i tried to move away from these feelings actually they were with me wherever i was and and that was a really precious opportunity because although it was difficult, although it was challenging, being with those feelings allowed me to find the clarity to say, actually, you know what, if I'm really going to understand my mind, it's not going to be through reading books at university. I'm going to need to go. And, and as it turned out for me, it was to go away and, and become a Buddhist monk. Andy spent the next 10 years studying to become a monk
1: traveling to countries like Nepal, India, Myanmar, and Thailand, all in search of trying to better understand himself. Here's Andy Puddycomb on the TED stage.
5: People often ask me, you know, what I learned from that time. Well, obviously it changed things, you know. Let's face it, becoming a celibate monk is going to change a number of things. But it was more than that. You know, it it taught me, it gave me a greater appreciation and understanding for the present moment. By that, I mean not being lost in thought, not being distracted, not being overwhelmed by difficult emotions, but instead learning how to be in the here and now, how to be mindful, how to be present. I think the present moment is so underrated, sounds so ordinary, and yet We spend so little time in the present moment that it's anything but ordinary.
1: But but I mean, how do you? I mean, how do you stay present? Like, is it a matter of of constantly reminding yourself?
5: So it's interesting. I think over time, it's like uh, you know, almost like muscle memory. You know, if it's done enough times, it, it simply becomes stronger and stronger. But I think in terms of the. You know how it's actually done. So, if I think of a couple of examples, I, I remember getting told off once, guy, in one of the the monasteries. I was I was in a very naughty Wait, monk, You know. got
1: told off at a I monastery? Could... <laughs> Wait, that happens at a monastery? <laughs> that
5: absolutely happens okay, in a right. monastery. And I remember at one. I can't even remember now. I think I'd read a book or something in the library that I wasn't supposed to read or something. And I was I was given a task to do, and it was to cut the grass, and it was to cut the grass with a pair of scissors. Oh, hmm. now. Oof at the time when i was doing it for the at least for the first kind of hour or two of doing that in my mind i was just busy talking to myself this is ridiculous this is crazy so stupid yeah and and really kind of just building up a lot of frustration and anger it was entirely my own kind of doing that stuff and i was kind of creating this this tension in the mind and in my body and at some stage i think i remember just kind of just laughing to myself at the absurdity Mm. of it but through having let go of that storyline and having let go of that tension, all of a sudden, I was kind of released from that story. And all of a sudden, it actually became quite a, a pleasant activity. So there's a really good example of how, look, the activity is what it was. I, I got to define the experience of that activity by how I was relating to it with my mind. And so in the monastery, you're constantly kind of challenged. You know, if you're sweeping the floor, Are you sweeping the floor whilst thinking about something else that happened in the past or looking to the future, hoping something will happen in the future? Or are you simply present with the sound and the sensation of the broom? And it's it's such a simple idea, but if it's done sort of repeatedly over time, then it has a really sort of transformative effect on the mind. For Andy, simple actions like this became a form of
1: meditation a way to sharpen his focus instead of being lost in thought and it's something he's gone on to share with millions of others
5: there was a a research paper that came out of harvard just recently that said on average our minds are lost in thought almost 47 percent of the time 47 percent at the same time this sort of constant mind wandering is also a direct cause of unhappiness now we're not here for that long anyway, but to spend almost half of our life lost in thought and potentially quite unhappy, I don't know, it just it kind of seems tragic, actually, especially when there's something we can do about it, when there's a positive, practical, achievable, scientifically proven technique which allows our mind to be more healthy, to be more mindful and less distracted. And the beauty of it is that even though it kind of need only take about 10 minutes a day, it impacts our entire life. But we need to know how to do it. We need an exercise. We need a framework to learn how to be more mindful. That's essentially what meditation is. It's familiarizing ourselves with the present moment. Because most people assume that meditation is all about sort of stopping thoughts, getting rid of emotions, somehow controlling the mind. But actually, it's quite different from that. It's more about sort of stepping back, sort of seeing the thought clearly, witnessing it coming and going, emotions coming and going without judgment, but with a relaxed, focused mind. I'm reminded of uh, of a time, I used to work in a kitchen in this restaurant. And I remember there was a chef in there. And he used to swear a lot. And, um, and, and he'd be running backwards and forwards through the kitchen. And every now and again, he would stop and, and he'd be like, it's so noisy in here. Why is there so much going on? And, and we'd all just kind of look at him and go, well, you're making all the noise, you know. And, and I, I sometimes think that in our search for happiness, we make so much noise, if not externally, in our own mind. That actually we miss the very thing that we were looking for and we realized that oh actually it was here all along so I, I sometimes worry about this kind of search for happiness or trying to be more happy and that for me I can only speak from my own experience but the framework of meditation was so useful where there isn't really this idea of trying to be happy it's more simply creating a framework where we let go of all the things that bring us unhappiness I know this is
1: probably going to be a complex thing for you to answer because meditation is not – it's not sort of – by practitioner, not seen as a something you do with a goal in mind or, or an end point or destination, yeah. right? But, but I mean could, could you make the argument that by meditating even just a few minutes a day, mm-hmm. you can
5: actually become
1: a better version of yourself?
5: Yeah, I fundamentally kind of believe so. And I say that based on my own experience rather than from a a point of opinion, you know. And it's an experience that has been fed back to me by so many people now. Hmm. I genuinely, Guy, I never believed for a moment when I left the monastery that if people did sort of 10 or 15 minutes a day, that that would make a significant difference in their life. Hmm. And I am blown away on a daily basis by the amount of people who write in and say, this has changed my life. And look, that's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot. But when you read kind of the experience of these people, there is definitely something in taking even just a few minutes out of the day that can have a really significant impact on, on the mind and the experience of life. Andy Puttycomb,
1: he's a former Buddhist monk and the co-founder of a meditation app called Headspace. You can see his full talk at TED.com. So for a lot of us, the first step to a better you begins on January 1st.
2: I always set New Year's resolutions and I always break them. And uh, what
1: are your what are your like recurring resolutions?
2: Oh, it's usually to, to be more interesting. I mean, <laughs> oh,
1: that's, a, that's a good one. Yeah. Uh,
2: yeah. I mean, be more interesting. And that can be in anything. Maybe it's picking up a new hobby. Like I want to uh, one one year I wanted to learn a guitar and that that didn't even last a week.
1: This is Emily Belchettis. She's a social psychologist who studies goal-setting and motivation.
2: So every January 1st, you know, we're reminded about the importance of goals and, and how so many people have you know, a renewed enthusiasm for making them. And then after a few months, a feeling of dejection for again having let them go.
1: In fact, Emily says that by Valentine's Day, most of us have already quit whatever we were determined to do back in January. And Emily wanted to understand why this happens, why it's so hard to stay motivated, and she specifically looked at exercise and why so many people have such a hard time meeting their fitness goals.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So we we know we know several reasons why. We don't have the time, our lives are quite busy, we're pulled in in many directions from friends and family and our careers. That's not the new thing that we have to offer. The unexpected explanation that we have been investigating is that maybe you and I are seeing a slightly different world and maybe that can help us understand why you might be able to better meet your goals than I am. So we're really interested in this comparison between how do healthy or fit people see the world and how do unhealthy people see the world.
1: Emily Belchetta spoke about her research on the TED stage.
2: Some people may literally see exercise as more difficult, and some people might literally see exercise as easier. So, we gathered objective measurements of individuals' physical fitness. After gathering these measurements, we told our participants that they would walk to a finish line while carrying extra weight in a sort of race. But before they did that, we asked them to estimate the distance to the finish line we thought that the physical states of their body might change how they perceived the distance. But so too can our mind. In fact, our bodies and our mind work in tandem to change how we see the world around us. That led us to think that maybe people with strong motivations and strong goals to exercise might actually see the finish line as closer. So what did we find? Well, people who were out of shape and unfit actually saw the distance to the finish line as significantly greater than people who were in better shape. Importantly, though, this only happened for people who were not motivated to exercise. On the other hand, people who were highly motivated to exercise saw the distance as short. Even the most out-of-shape individuals saw the finish line as just as close, if not slightly closer, than people who were in better shape.
1: I mean, hearing this sort of intuitively makes me think, you know, well, motivation is a brain thing. You know, it's it's all about some people are just naturally more motivated than than other people. Like some people, like, you know, those people, they get up every day, they write a journal entry, they do yoga, they meditate, and they're still at work before everybody else. And, and I just, I come across those people and I think, God, they're so lucky. They just, it's just in them. They just have it. And some of us just don't.
2: That would be a really demoralizing way to, to think <laughs> about uh, our possibilities for our life.
1: Good. All right. Great.
2: So I disagree, and I I, I assume you disagree as well, that, that it's not like a fixed sum. It's not that some people are motivated and some aren't. Um, but we might think that, yeah. and that can be part of the problem. Hmm. And some people might think, you know, I am who I am, and there's really little that can happen that I could do to change that. Those people are going to have a harder time meeting their goals. Once they experience a setback or a failure, well, if that's just who I am, then why should I try again? And and that's that's the wrong mindset to bring to any challenge that we might be facing. Hmm.
1: So what's the secret? What is the secret to staying motivated?
2: Well, there's no one easy answer, of course. You know, really what we want to do is try to think about a tool belt or a toolbox and offering a variety of different techniques to consider that might work for you and might not, so that you just have more strategies available that you can use at the at the right time and the right place.
1: So, so when you were doing this experiment and, and asking people to, to guess the distance that that they had to walk, did you did you come across any strategies that that work, like that helped people to stay motivated?
2: Yeah. So, what we noticed was that. If these fit people are seeing the distances as shorter, we wondered if there was something that we could teach people that would help them see the world the way a fit person sees it. And could that improve the quality of their exercise? From that research that we did, we created what we called the Keep Your Eyes on the Prize strategy. This is not the slogan from an inspirational poster. It's an actual directive for how to look around your environment. People that we trained in this strategy, we we told them to focus their attention on the finish line, to avoid looking around, to imagine a spotlight was shining on that goal and that everything else around it was blurry and perhaps difficult to see. We compared this group to a baseline group. We said, just look around the environment as you naturally would. You will notice the finish line, but you might also notice the garbage can off to the right or the people in the lampposts off to the left. People who kept their eyes on the prize saw the finish line as 30% closer than people who looked around as they naturally would. This strategy helped make the exercise look easier. But the big question was, could this help make exercise actually better? Could it improve the quality of exercise as well? It did. People who kept their eyes on the prize told us afterwards that it required 17 percent less exertion for them to do this exercise than people who looked around naturally. It changed their subjective experience of the exercise. It also changed the objective nature of their exercise. People who kept their eyes on the prize actually moved 23 percent faster than people who looked around naturally. We were so excited by this, because this meant that a strategy that costs nothing, that is easy for people to use, regardless of whether they're in shape or struggling to get there, made the exercise look and feel easier, even when people were working harder because they were moving faster. It's just how our eyes work. We all see the world through our mind's eye, but we can teach ourselves to see it differently.
1: OK, so if this is true, right, if this strategy works, h- how would it actually help people who, you know, who have a hard time just just getting started?
2: Yeah, I think you know, what we want to do is to create a success experience in the here and now because success breeds success. If you have accomplished your goal, like just making it to the stop sign that's that's three blocks away, you're more likely to repeat that in the future because you've increased your sense of efficacy. You feel like you can master it. You feel like you can do it and that you have the resources to take on this challenge.
1: So, I mean, is it fair to say that, that whether or not we get in into shape or we sort of you know improve our our health um or become a better version of ourselves. A lot of that is just in our head
2: absolutely, huh. absolutely. It's the mindset that we bring to the table, and it's the the tools that we teach ourselves. so by learning a whole host of tools we can we can have the right tool for the challenge. So the important message here really is that our mindset and the aspects of our psychological experience that we can control do play a big starring role in the motivation that we have and then our ability to meet those goals. There's so much power that's in our own eyes and in our own brain.
1: Emily Belchettis, she's a social psychologist at NYU. You can see her entire talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about a better you. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, American Express. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.
6: This message comes from NPR sponsor Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices, and they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Greenlight. Want to teach your kids financial literacy? With Greenlight, kids and teens use a debit card of their own, while parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and savings in the app. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash NPR.
1: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about becoming better versions of ourselves. And as we just heard from Emily Belchettis, motivation,
7: it can be the key to getting there, especially when you're trying something new. Tried to write a compliment for my wife each day. Tried to eat more slowly and mindfully. Tried to have fewer meetings. This is Matt Cutts. Cooking one dish each day. Exercise twice a day. Pick up the ukulele and play it for 10 minutes a day. Matt used to be an engineer at Google. And now I work at the U.S. Digital Service. And all those things
1: Matt just listed, they're things that he's actually done for at least 30 straight days. Okay, so... Are you basically perfect? No. No. no you're not. No. There's do, nothing... do I look perfect to you? Come you seem pretty perfect. <laughs> Matt sort of sees himself as an experiment, a work in progress. And his obsession with trying new things, it all started a few years ago after he watched a TV show called 30 Days.
0: Hi, I'm Morgan Spurlock.
1: And on and each episode, the host, Morgan Spurlock, you, some you some might remember him I from the movie Super Size Me, Morgan days, would spend 30 don't days don't immersing himself physical, in a totally different lifestyle.
7: So I decided to follow in the footsteps of the great American philosopher, Morgan Spurlock, and try something new for 30 days. Matt describes what happened next on the TED stage. The idea is actually pretty simple. Think about something you've always wanted to add to your life and try it for the next 30 days. It turns out 30 days is just about the right amount of time to add a new habit or subtract a habit from your life. There's a few things that I learned while doing these 30-day challenges. The first was, instead of the months flying by forgotten, the time was much more memorable. I also noticed that as I started to do more and harder 30-day challenges, my self-confidence grew. I went from desk-dwelling computer nerd to the kind of guy who bikes to work for fun. Even last year, I ended up hiking up Mount Kilimanjaro, the highest mountain in Africa. I would never have been that adventurous before I started my 30-day challenges. That is impressive. Kilimanjaro.
1: So, so basically every 30 days. And, and so what are you trying out now?
7: Uh, I'm trying to practice gratitude. So every day I try to think of one thing I like about myself, about the world, and about someone else. So how do you remind yourself to do this every day? You wake up and
1: say, I've got to remind myself to show gratitude?
7: Uh, one trick that I found is get a calendar. And get a marker. And you basically say, I have to mark an X at some point today on that calendar. So you get a streak going. And at that point, you're like, I got to keep my streak going. And so you, you can't go to sleep until you mark your X on the calendar by doing that activity that day. Tell me this idea behind 30 days. Why 30
1: days? Why not seven days? Why not 20 days?
7: Well, it needs to be something that easily slots into your mind. And people say that to learn a new habit can take anywhere from 21 to 45 days. But those are really weird numbers, right? 30 days is super easy to remember because you just, when a new month rolls around, you're like, okay, it's time for a new habit. So do you plan ahead? Like, what are you going to do for the next month? So I have found that you don't want to plan ahead too much because then you start to feel guilty. You don't want to do New Year's resolutions where they're planned out 12 months in advance. So normally around the end of the month, about a week left, I'll start just opening myself up to ideas and suggestions. I'll be like, you know, what am I noticing? When am I not feeling good? You also have to be okay with failure. There's a lot of habits that are not going to take. Yeah. I tried meditation for a month. It was awful. What happened? Uh, I did it for 30 days, and I tried to meditate for 15 minutes a day. And it was torture? It was so painful. <laughs> I <hated laughs> what, what, what happened when you meditated? Um, my brain went crazy, and I got frustrated. And eventually, I learned I could go outside, and I could like count the leaves on trees. And that was somewhat calming, but I'm going to have to do it again, because apparently, I don't have a meditating personality. you got to follow the breath, Matt. You follow the breath. <laughs> Inhale breath, exhale stress. You follow
1: it all the way through your body. You know, a lot of people, it works for them. Did you ever, like, give up uh, gluten or do anything like that
7: for a month? Like, yes, some... I, I did try going vegan for a month. Why, why? Why did you become a vegan for a month? Because we should all be reexamining our assumptions, right? In, in 50 years, what are the beliefs that we have that are going to be proven wrong? And maybe one of those beliefs is, you know, whether we should be eating meat, for example right? You know, you can look back at people like Thomas Jefferson, and it's very clear with the benefit of hindsight and history, oh, they were doing some things that uh, modern day people wouldn't approve of. So you can take a step back and think and say, what would I be doing today that 50 years from now people wouldn't approve of? And it seemed like going vegan was a good chance to try that. I mean, so, so say,
1: say, you know, somebody listening uh, wanted to just try this out, right? How, how should they go about it? Like,
7: what should they do? Well, I, I love when people think about things they've always wanted to try and just give it a shot. But there's some really easy ones that you can start with. So, for example, try just taking one picture every single day for 30 days. And what I found when I did that challenge is that I was more likely to remember each day and be able to mark the time. And I remembered a few things that I would have forgotten otherwise. You can do that. You can give up television. You can try to just go for a walk every day. And don't you don't have to put a number on it. You just have to say, I'm going to go for a walk or I'm going to tell my wife something that I love about her. They can be totally simple. They don't have to be hard. They don't need to be ambitious. It just needs to be something that you think you might want to do. And then you can try it on for size. By
1: by constantly seeking to improve yourself, does it also give you
7: a perspective on how imperfect you
1: are and how flawed you
7: are? <laughs> yes, absolutely. No, there, there are a lot of people who can do things so much better than I can. But uh, even if I come in 109 out of 111 in a triathlon, I feel like I still beat the people who stayed on the couch that day. And is there something
1: innate, something about us as humans that, that drives us to, to seek self-improvement? I mean, do you think it's a an inherent human trait and desire?
7: I don't know whether it's inherent or not, but I do know that when you see someone striving, a lot of people are interested in that and a lot of people are attracted to that. And a lot of people want to be that person's friend or follow them along or go along for the adventure. Whenever you see someone doing something crazy, rowing across the Atlantic or something like that, they want to learn more about it. And so I don't know whether it's inherent, but I do think that everybody understands the appeal of striving for something new. A lot of people say that whenever you are hopefully resting very contentedly on your deathbed, you'll look back on your life. And current projections say people probably spend two years of their life on Facebook, you know. And if you, if you think back, what are you going to regret? You're going to regret the things that you didn't try. That's Matt Cutts. You can hear
1: his entire talk at TED.com. So uh, I just asked Matt Cuts this question, and, and I'm curious to get your take on it, which is, do you think that self-improvement is innate? Like, as humans, do you, do you think that we all want to become better? Yeah, I,
4: I think people are innately curious. They get around something, and they they just want to learn about it. This is New York Times columnist David Brooks. And there's a sense that some people, wise people, they have an inner peace that you hunger for. Or some people, they radiate a moral inner light. They're just incandescent inside, and they're joyful. And so you often see people who are doing life better than you. <laughs> and you see them, and I often think, you know, I've achieved more career success than I ever thought I would, but I don't have that. So I'd like to have that.
1: For a while now, David has been searching for that. You can call it inner peace or inner light or just character, which is the term he landed on for his recent book.
4: You know, I wrote this book called The Road to Character about people who are innerly searching, and some of them is super sappy and super sentimental. Uh, George Eliot, deeply in love. Dorothy Day, struggling with her inner demons. And sometimes I'd go to these meetings In a conference room, and I'd go to talk about my book, and there'd be a bunch of middle-aged white guys, and I thought, okay, I'm going before this audience of CFOs, and I'm going to tell them about George Eliot's love life. And then when I would start talking, there would be a quality of silence, such as I've never heard, as people begin to lock in. And even the most superficial and the most boring people, (laughs) seemingly, have this hunger, they have a hunger for true joy and true fulfillment. Everyone feels this; it's somehow baked into our souls.
1: But this raises a question. If we all desperately want to feel fulfilled, what's stopping us from seeking that out? Well, for David, part of the answer is that we spend far too much time focused on values like ambition and success, and too little time on values like honesty, compassion, and kindness. Here's David Brooks on the TED stage.
4: So I've been thinking about that problem, and a thinker who's helped me think about it is a guy named Joseph Soloveitchik, who was a rabbi who wrote a book called The Lonely Man of Faith in 1965. Soloveitchik said there are two sides of our natures, which he called Adam 1 and Adam 2. Adam 1 is the worldly, ambitious, external side of our nature. Adam 2 is the humble side of our nature. Adam 1 asks how things work. Adam 2 asks why we're here. Adam 1's motto is success. Adam II's motto is love, redemption, and return. And the tricky thing I'd say about these two sides of our nature is they work by different logics. The external logic is an economic logic. Input leads to output, risk leads to reward. The internal side of our nature is a moral logic and often an adverse logic. You have to give to receive. You have to conquer the desire to get what you want. In order to fulfill yourself, you have to forget yourself in order to find yourself you have to lose yourself
1: i mean when you think about the the two atoms do you do you think that you've always placed more weight and importance on on that second version
4: i think so i wonder if i was 22 I might think, well, you know, getting that out of one thing, getting that career right is pretty important, but I'm not 22 anymore. So I do think that, Adam, too, uh, getting the inner resources right, getting the heart right, getting the soul right is the more important thing. And I can tell you I've achieved um, more career success, more recognition. I've got a better job than I ever thought I would. And it is the central lie of American life is that success leads to happiness, and that's just not true. And that only comes through spiritual depth and spiritual peace. That only comes from a struggle towards some moral ideal.
1: Yeah, and, and happiness is definitely a struggle, right? I mean, like, like for most of us, it's something we have to work hard at. Yeah, I've come to dislike happiness. <laughs> <laughs> and, and partly as a word. I, I
4: mean, I do think happiness is uh, – somebody said there are four levels of happiness. First, material pleasures. Two, status, becoming success. Three, generativity, which is the pleasure you get from giving back. And fourth is transcendence, the joy you feel when you're connected and serving a universal love, a universal ideal, a universal truth. And moving from one and two to three and four seems to be moving beyond what we call happiness toward joy or fulfillment or purpose. You know, if you ask me about the most important times in my life or anybody the most important times, it's rarely the happy times. It's the times when you're struggling for some ideal. And that sort of defies happiness, but it points more toward fulfillment. I was reminded of a common response through history of how you build a depth of character. Through history, people have gone back into their own pasts, sometimes to a precious time in their life, to their childhood. And often, the mind gravitates in the past to a moment of shame. Some seem committed, some act of selfishness, a lack of courage. Adam one is built by a building on your strengths. Adam two is built by fighting your weaknesses. You go into yourself, you find the sin which you've committed over and again through your life, your signature sin, out of which the others emerge. And you fight that sin and you wrestle with that sin. And out of that wrestling, that suffering, then a depth of character is constructed. And we're often not taught to recognize the sin in ourselves, and we're not taught in this culture how to wrestle with it, how to confront it, and how to combat it.
1: Do you remember a point in your life where you thought, I need to change this about who I am?
4: Yeah, I think that all the time. You know, I've got my list of core sins, a tendency toward glibness and shallowness, a a fear of having unpleasant conversations— Uh, And then, like a lot of people, I struggle against selfishness all the time. And David Foster Wallace in that famous Kenyan commencement address, we see the world from the vantage point of me. Everything's in front of me, behind me, back of me. And we just have an innate selfishness. And so
1: one struggles with that continually. I'm I'm wondering if you ever have this experience, which is, you know, like on this show, we we just did an episode on, on altruism. And then another on forgiveness and one about compassion and kindness, you know, and working on all of these shows. I think a lot of people assume that I then embody all of these traits. But, um, but you know, I, I can be unkind. I can be unforgiving. And, and I, I think about this a lot, that there's this, this kind of disconnect between what I talk about on the show and, and how I sometimes behave in my personal life. Do you, do you know what I mean? Does that, does that happen to you?
4: Hey, welcome to my world. Uh, Yeah, my joke after writing this book was that writing a book on character doesn't give you character, and reading a book on character doesn't give you character, but buying a book on character gives you good character. Um, And, you know, I do think the learning is important. You have to know with intentionality, like if forgiveness, you have to have some thoughts about what forgiveness is, but just knowing it is not enough. We all know what to do a lot of the time, but that doesn't mean I know it. It has to be followed up with two other faculties. One is loving it enough to actually do it, to be motivated to do it, and then having a sort of a moral yearning that even if it's not pleasant, you're still going to do the thing because you believe that it's right. And learning that depth of love and that depth of passion is what we need to really propel us and motivate us to do good.
1: So how do you, how do, you do it? What do, you, what, what, do you have a daily practice? Is it, is it books? Is it, uh, is it literature? What is it?
4: Uh, it's two things. One, I, I've decided that I'm going to risk being earnest. And I'm going to err on that side, and sometimes I'll go over the line and be insufferable. But the world needs a little earnestness, because there's a lot of cynicism and snarkiness. So I'm going to risk that. But secondly, the, I think the solution for a lot of us is what I call a galaxy of warm places. That every week, you have a regular set of people you meet with where the dominant mode is not ideas and intellect, it's emotion. Hmm. I've come to not believe that character is built internally through an inner drama with self, though that's part of it. It's built externally by making commitments to things, to a spouse or family, to a philosophy or faith, to a community and to a vocation. And how well we choose those things and execute those things determines the fulfillment of our lives.
1: It's author and New York Times columnist David Brooks. You can see all of his talks at TED.com.
0: Work
3: it,
7: make it, do it. Makes us harder, better, faster,
1: stronger. Hey, thanks for listening to our show, A Better You, this week. It's our 100th episode, and we've got lots of cool stuff online to celebrate 100 episodes of the TED Radio Hour. So please, please check out our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. It's at TED Radio Hour. If you want to go back and hear the other 99 episodes of TED Radio Hour, you can find them at ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkinpur, Janae West, Neva Grant, Rund Abdel Fattah, Casey Herman, and Rachel Faulkner, with help from Thomas Liu and Daniel Shukin. Our intern is Tony Liu. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
6: Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies solve food. From employee meal plans to on site staffing to concierge ordering support, with corporate accounts, nationwide restaurant coverage, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.